We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. There is an academic and scientific community in this country that's concerned important data in the public interest controlled by the government is at risk. The fear is that policies, research, and data related to climate, energy, and other issues, especially those in conflict with administration positions, could be expunged. Imagine, for instance, if all the data gathered by the government on climate change were removed or destroyed. There's an effort underway to rescue and protect the data by downloading it and preserving it in safe storage. Joining me to talk about this is Aaron Addison, Director of Data Services at Washington University. Aaron, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here. Why is this data rescue necessary? Well, I think people become concerned anytime there's a threat of putting a gap into the historical record. Um, the, the topics that have been discussed more recently are around publicly collected data. Um, this goes back even to uh, colonial times when ships would keep logs of their uh, whereabouts and the conditions of the sea at any given time. Uh, a lot of these things are stored uh, for the for the historical record, and it's only recently that people have really begun to value what some of these records might mean. So if you fast forward to today, I think what we're seeing is just an extension of that concern that uh, you know, it, it's a difficult thing to reconcile. Am I going to want this data later? Do I need it right now? What is the cost, the effort of preserving it and so forth? So I think it's, it's not any one thing that you can put a finger on, but rather all those things. When this issue first came to, to my attention, it was over expressions of concern that our own government might be uh, expunging some of this information because it was uh, contrary to the government policies. Does that sound right to you? It's it's largely correct. I think any time you have a, a single source or a single responsible party for uh, the storage and or the accessibility of a data set, it becomes a point of concern, uh, whether that's happening at the federal level, the state level, or even the local level. Um, we see examples of that across the board if some person decides – uh, you know, as there's a, a change in leadership at one of those levels, they may either not prioritize that and allocate resources to maintaining it, or they may have a different direction they want to go, which includes pulling all that data back. Mm. Uh, so it's a it's definitely a point of concern because there are a lot of research projects, there are a lot of data informed decisions that take place that rely on the availability and the accessibility of that data. Yeah. You mentioned some examples you've had at, at various levels. Can you give me some some of those examples? Well, I think uh, there, was a, there was a big concern at the national level uh, with the last administration change that the, some of these data sets would no longer be available. I think there are conversations currently going on. There's an open comment period, for example, right now with the U.S. Census Bureau about what data products will or won't be available during the uh, next decennial census in 2020. And so those are things that people begin to, to rave the red flag and or become concerned about because of, of ongoing activities or the fear that somehow that data is being removed from the public record. Has this happened before? I mean, we're talking about the most recent change of administrations. How about in the past? Has some data been lost uh, through this process? Absolutely. I think uh, you know one of the, the most famous cases of missing data 
was in the 1960 census. Uh, there was a, a research project, I believe, at the University of Minnesota that went back to digitize the uh, older pre-digital mm-hmm. census documents. And they were able to replicate the entire 1960 census with the exception of Cook County, Illinois, which is, of course, Chicago. And those records are just simply gone. They don't exist anymore. And if I remember correctly, 1960 was the year that John Kennedy was elected president, and many people said it was those ghost voters in Chicago that uh, won him the election. That's right. Yeah. Any other kinds of examples? Well, I think nonsenses. Yeah, I think uh, you know, outside of demographics, uh, which there are a lot of of uh, records right now that are pointing to whether it's housing discrimination. Uh, Facebook was just named as a. Uh, using unfair practices uh, with HUD recipients and uh, decisions that were being made there. I think in social media, um, you know, who owns the tweets, how long do the tweets last, uh, and so forth as a matter of public record. Um, There are a lot of decisions that go back and look at the patterns of those tweets. Uh, For example, a, a natural disaster you may have people that are tweeting from uh, a hurricane site in the U.S. or an earthquake in Mexico. How is that data going to be used? How long should it live? What is it What is it in terms of the responsibility of retaining that data, preserving that data, that we want to engage in, again, given that we have finite resources, uh, finite um, human resources in addition to just money in order to make those things happen. So, you know, we could we could also explore the domain of medicine and how long we want to keep uh, records that were related to this study or that study where they superseded um, by by new work and, and what is the, the relative nature of that data and where should we keep it if we're not going to keep it in one place. Are, are there any laws or policies or regulations that would prohibit the, the destruction of, uh, of some of these uh, data? Uh, I think there are guidelines more than there are laws, and there's also um, just convention, historical convention of we've always done it this way. And I think for data in particular, that's an area that hasn't really been covered well in uh, legislation to say that we are going to keep these things. Um, there, there are broader laws that say, uh, you know, locally Sunshine Act laws where mm-hmm. we might be able to demand that a piece of data may be made available if it was collected with taxpayer dollars, let's say. But at the federal level, there is a website called data.gov. What gets posted there, the timeliness of what gets posted there, the completeness of what gets posted there, um, I think, to be fair, is very uneven. Why is this data posted on government.gov? Uh, is it so, for people like you or researchers? Sure. I, yeah. I mean, any anyone can go there and download those data sets. Now, there are some that are subject to additional scrutiny. So what you may get when you go to the site and to the data layer is a connection or a piece of contact information that says, oh, if you want this piece of data, you need to go over to this person and ask them and mm-hmm. articulate what your need is. Is, is it fair to assume that if if we wanted to, you wanted to, you could uh, peel that onion and get all of the data uh, uh, connected to something like, let's say, climate change? Um, sure. I mean, whatever is available is available. And so if you want to marshal the resources and build your own servers and, mm-hmm. and store all that information, there's nothing to, to keep you from doing that. And that, in fact, was the data rescue efforts that began last year yeah. was – kind of this forklift exercise of we're going to grab everything. I think where a lot of those efforts kind of got stalled uh, was how do you maintain that now? Mm-hmm. You have everything that's 
those extant, how are you going to move forward and maintain all the iterative updates? And that's where it gets a lot more complicated. Well, you said you could get all of the data that was available. I suppose some of it could not be available, that, that for uh, security reasons, you name it, uh, it just wouldn't be out there in any form. That's right. And so some of the data is simply not available for security reasons. Other pieces of data uh, may only be available as a derivative data set. In other words, you can't have access to the raw data. Uh, one area where we see things like that would maybe be in uh, job numbers or economic data that's been adjusted uh, for uh, normalcy, but mm. you're not ever going to be able to see that raw data. So the government, and I really hesitate to even bring this up, but uh, it's it's sort of a frightening specter. If the government wanted to, um, it could keep key data from people like you. Possibly. I, I think that that's been perhaps a little overblown, but it's still a point of concern. And again, I think any time you're going to see a single point of failure where all roads lead to the same repository, that's problematic on many different levels. Mm -hmm. So we kind of have a saying that says uh, lots of copies keep stuff safe. And so from that kind of paradigm, you know, if you can distribute it out uh, to different institutions, to the cloud, things like this, it's Mm going to have a lot better chance of remaining available than it might otherwise have. But, of course, that costs money. Yeah. yeah. The data rescue thing, as you pointed out, really got started – what, a year or so ago, a little more than a, more than a year ago. And I think the temptation would be to try to, to uh, relate that to the, the Trump administration. You alluded to the fact that there was an administration change. Uh, is that fair? Um, I think it's just the latest example. I think these uh-huh. things have gone on for a long time. Um, you know, is it, is it more so now? Is it the same? Um, I think history will be the judge of that. I think there are a lot mm-hmm. of moving pieces to that, and it's not to say that we should always collect the same amount of information we've always, you know, uh, ascribed to in the past. But here we have a case where it's it's not happening in a vacuum; it's it's in concert with all of these other decisions that the administration is making, and so it it adds certainly to the concern. Well, let's uh, let's go back then to when all of this started at Washington. You most recently, anyway. Um, tell us about the data rescue plan as it has evolved at uh, WashU. Sure. So we we maintain an archive of data that that many people would not be interested in uh, for a variety of reasons. For example, we maintain historical aerial photos of the St. Louis region uh, as a as a record of change over time. Our architecture and our social work students are very interested in that to see how a particular area of the city perhaps has changed. And uh, and they'll use that data to, to do different types of exploration and development uh, ideas within the, within the region. If I can interrupt um, for just a second, sure. where would that data have come from? That data would have likely come from uh, our participation in a regional consortium of entities that all work together to document the St. Louis area, okay. but as recently as five years ago, that data would have come from the federal government through grant funding mm-hmm. um, that was sunset before uh, the Trump administration, but certainly is being continued um, because there are a lot of other resources for that that type of information now. Mm-hmm. Okay, I interrupted. Uh, go ahead with regard to that. Uh, this, sure. This so, aerial photos. Sure. So mm-hmm. our aerial photo collection is just one example of a local data set that we would we would be involved with. I think um, more broadly what we saw happen during the data rescue event were different institutions took uh, different parts. You can imagine the, the 
task of trying to um, just head on absorb all of the information that the and data that the federal government has, mm-hmm. and there's no one institution that can can tackle that. And so, um, different communities kind of bubbled up from that, and they would say, "Okay, we're going to work on the demographic data, we're going to work on the natural science data," and in doing that, um, they were able to have a more uh, collective effort in terms of rescuing this data, or at least making another copy of it. Yeah. So how does all of this work? I mean, you've got students, I guess, uh, primarily involved in this. Just just uh, illustrate for us how how you retrieve this data. So so it's it's kind of uh, not very glamorous. It's a brute force <laughs> activity for the most part. Some of it can be scripted and and what we call scraped or, or downloaded automatically from the internet. Um, and various resources, but it it involves some students. It involves a lot of library staff that are very dedicated towards these types of activities and understand the longitudinal nature of some of these data sets and the importance of keeping it intact uh, for prosperity. So I think those are things that uh, you know are are unseen and aren't very glamorous, but can be very valuable efforts in and of themselves. And where is the data stored? So the data would be stored, again, this is a community effort, so it's not stored in any one place. There's no one place that you could go and just say, okay, if we pull the plug here, we can remove the existence of this data set. And again, that's a combination of institutional repositories, but also cloud uh, resources are put into play to distribute that data um, and keep it from having a single point of failure. Is there a master catalog? So if uh, Joe Blow from Kokomo wants to find out something, can he go someplace and have an index of what's out there? I don't think you would find it as such. I think different institutions do a very good job of documenting what they have and their holdings. Um, But part of this effort is uh, each each institution making their own contributions to that and cataloging what they have. And so it would take someone – uh, you know, some level of effort to do that currently. Having said that, there are projects that would like to make this master catalog of what's available, but those efforts are uh, slow going for a variety of reasons. There's a lot of data that's stored in different formats, and all of those things have to kind of come together. Uh, and it takes a very dedicated person over many years to to even begin to address that. Well, the reason you're doing this is to is to preserve data. Uh, how do you secure what data that you have down, downloaded? So we, we use a strategy, and this is a strategy that, that listeners can use at home as well, of 3-2-1. And so the, the practice suggests that you want to have at least three copies of your data on two different types of media, and one of those should be off-site. So you're guarding against disk failure, computer failure, but you're also guarding against uh, physical destruction of that disk through fire, flooding, um, and those types of things. And I think when you when you look at industries, you look at individuals who really want to have uh, their data, and it's very important, if not critical, to their livelihood, they'll follow those practices. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, most of us as individuals, we don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may have... Uh, you know, these cryptically named folders that have all of these digital photos in them, um, but nobody knows what they are. We never curated them. We never went through and took out the ones that weren't important to us, uh, which is is a different thing in this day and age than even it was when I was growing up 20 or 30 years ago because I could pull out a photo 
and my grandmother or my mother had written on the back who was in mm-hmm. the photo. We don't even do that anymore. And so there's this gap that's forming in our family record, and, and uh, that's unfortunate. Well, I, I, we have many authors on this program, and what they tell us, you know, they depend, historians in particular, depend on, on letters. And now there are no letters. It's, uh, it's all email and that's, texting and what have that's, you. That's very true. You know, what does is, what is your mother's handwriting look like if all you ever got from her were texts? Yeah. Does digital data degrade over time? It does. And so you can have uh, mechanical things happen, uh, disk damage. Um, you can have what's called um, bit flipping where ones turned into zeros and vice versa under certain conditions. Uh, the, disks, the disks that are uh, mechanical have parts that wear out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's not unlike a light bulb in a lot of ways. It's not a matter of if the light bulb is going to burn out. It's just a matter of when. Well, what do you do about that? Well, this is where it's important to have these backups. Uh-huh. And if you've if you've done your due diligence and you've implemented a strategy like three, two, one, uh, then you'll be covered against any single point of failure. And this data we're talking about is is uh, stored on a three, two, one basis. It is, or or even uh, even systems and, and methodologies that are more robust than that. Uh-huh. And so those those data sets would be stored probably on at least two different servers, but they would also be backed up on magnetic tape. There might be, a, in some instances, a copy on another machine at a, uh, at a cooperating or a, a colleague's computer at another institution for certain types of data. And uh, in even other cases, it may even have a copy that lives on Amazon or Unbox or Dropbox or one of these services. Is there some mechanism for monitoring this stuff so to see if it is, in fact, uh, degrading? It is. Degrading? Uh, so we run a, a series of steps against our data sets, and this is the, the topic of data curation. Is, is what's there, uh, what's supposed to be there, really there, and is it really intact? And could we really recover mm-hmm. from it? And I, I unfortunately see a lot of projects that never test their backups. And so whenever the day comes, they really do have a problem. What they thought was there on their backup isn't, and this is this is to your point is why it's so important. We run fixity checks: is the data been corrupted? We run checks against the health of the hardware. We monitor the temperature of the computer, uh, and, and if any of those things become out of range, then we're notified, and that's a that's a flag that we need to take action mm-hmm. at that point. I am assuming that Washington University is not the, uh, the only institution that's doing this sort of thing. Absolutely not. I, I would say uh, you know. All, if not, you know, 95, 98 percent of them are doing this kind of thing. There again, it just boggles my mind to think of what kind of coordination there would have to be. And and rep- repetition, uh, uh, a lot of you folks doing the same thing. Absolutely. And in some cases, institutions for a variety of reasons are or may be doing the same thing for their own reasons. Uh, much in the same way that you can imagine if you went to uh, ten research institutions across the country, they may all ten have the same book on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are reasons why you would want to have the availability of that data. But in other cases, these communities mm-hmm. do interact. And again, the, the example that I can use is the library community, the librarians, the data staff, the uh, technical staff at these institutions. Uh, you know, they're a pretty tight-knit community, and they're very dedicated to making sure that this happens. You indicated earlier on that there were some uh, – there were some problems in continuing the, the data rescue work that you've been doing. What is the status of it now? So I think, uh, you know, it, it's like anything. There's a there's a big swell of activity at the beginning, okay. and then it tends to tail off over time. The, the big need there was 
you had this enormous amount of data that were on these websites, everything from the Library of Congress to the EPA to the Department of Energy and, and on data.gov I mentioned earlier. Uh, how do we just start on this process mm-hmm. and then you know, give ourselves some breathing room in terms of figuring out what's a long ter- long-term solution to this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're really, you're really working on two different dimensions, one that's very short-term. What do we do if they turn this off tomorrow? And one that's more long-term is how do we sustain this effort uh, if we're serious about saying we want to have multiple copies of this data, how are we going to? How are we actually going to make that happen? When you say they might turn this off tomorrow, who who, who is the they you're talking about? So I think it's just researchers that sounded an alarm that that uh, may or may not have been warranted at the level of of noise that was provided, um, but it it was sufficient to raise the awareness to say, hey. You know, regardless of what the current administration is, this is probably not an ideal makeup uh, and single point of failure for these important data sets, regardless of that. How much data is in storage now? How would you describe what's out there? It's it's remarkable, and it's, it's hard to even come to terms with. Um, you know, most people have heard of megabytes, gigabytes, possibly terabytes, mm-hmm. but there's there's like another five or six levels that go above that, you know, words like zettabyte. Um, and petabyte. And I think, you know, we have individual projects that are generating um, petabytes of data. And so whenever you start to pull all that together, what you come to terms with realistically is that it's not possible to archive all of it. Mm-hmm. And so this is, again, where, where curation comes into play. And an analogy I can to reuse, uh, if you'll allow me, is that not all books can be stored in the library. There's a finite amount of shelf mm-hmm. space in a library, and we have to make decisions about what we want to have on the shelf and what we don't. And that that conversation extends to data as well. Well, who's who's making the decisions? So I don't think it's any one person. I think in some domains, uh, they're they're really good at coming together as a community and making those decisions. I think in uh, other areas, you have librarians that are involved in helping to make those decisions. But uh, in no case t- that I'm aware of. Do you have individuals that are making those decisions, which I think is a much healthier way to go about it. What is the difference between data rescue and data harvesting that we're hearing so much about with regard to Facebook and Google and places like that? So um, functionally, I don't know that the process is any different. I think that the purpose and the reasons behind it are quite different. In data rescue, typically we're we're not – rescuing that data for ourselves, but we're, we're rescuing that as a part of the historical record or, mm-hmm. or for someone else to use at a later point. Data harvesting, I think, is where you begin to see uh, social media um, search engine companies like Google and, and Microsoft and others are pulling that data together to, to enhance their business practices. They're harvesting that data and they're bringing it to uh, target ads to the user to uh, – to connect them with other people in areas like LinkedIn is a good example of that. But uh, the use cases are very different. One is monetizing it, and the other is just saying, hey, I'm not sure it's a good idea for one person to be in control of all this. As someone who, who lives in this world, what do you make out of where we are right now in all of this? I think it's uncertain times. I think that there's a lot of this book that's left to be written. Um, some of that is is related to the the economics of the situation. Some of it is more related to uh, policy. What is it that we want to allow companies to 
to keep and to harvest uh, about us? What is it that we want to prioritize in terms of uh, much wider data sets that maybe I don't have a vested interest in, but I still want there to be that historical climate record available to anyone that wants to be able to use it? And so that's a matter of prioritizing. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of that that hasn't happened yet and we're in the midst of. And I think we'll look back on these days uh, in the future as kind of the wild, wild west period of anything goes. As long as you can pull the resources together, you could make it happen. The, the the issue of privacy, of course, is a uh, is a considerable one in all of this. J- just a quick story. I'd like to get your reaction to it. My son has an Alexa, and the other day he was wakened by this by the machine just shouting his name out of nowhere. I mean, no one was awake, and, and <laughs> Alexa was just calling his name. What the heck? I mean, that's scary. It is. Yeah. And so you know, these are the area. You know, these are the things that you sign up for. Whenever you agree, to, you know, or you in some cases pay to use that technology, are these rough edges around it as it's being developed? Um, that sounds like a bug, probably in their software. Um, you know, and is that really something that you want to be a part of your life? Yeah. Well, uh, we'll, we'll backtrack a little bit here. What is your best advice to John Q. Citizen about preserving their own data? You've already alluded to that. What they should do, and and protecting their own privacy. I think just to be aware, not to go through the automatic check boxes without paying attention to what you're signing up for, uh, especially with apps and social media. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be a, a, a game that you want to download for your kid, but you know you you inadvertently allowed them access to your contacts or to your your phone records or something on your device. So I think being aware of what you're doing is always going to be the best. There's no way to just totally shut it off unless you want to uh, not use Google, not use a smartphone, yeah. and, and not engage in society in that way. You can certainly reduce uh, most effectively in that manner, but that's not something that I see a lot of people willing to to go to that length in order to protect their privacy. And to be fair, you know, my daughters who are teenagers have a different concept of privacy than I do. I have a different concept mm-hmm. than my parents do. And so there's definitely a generational thing here as well um, that ultimately could even impact things like HIPAA. You know, what is it to have medical, medical privacy? Yeah. And is that as important to the the generation that, that comes after me as it was to me or to my parents? Yeah. Well, I know that all of my medical records are out there because, uh, you know, the, the, the medical professionals today like to do it that way. And if you want to check on, you know, tests sure. and that sort of thing, it, it is there. The genie is out of the bottle in all of this. I think you're right on that yeah. that yeah. respect. And that's why, you know, I, I go back to just be informed. Be aware of the decisions mm-hmm. you're making. Um, don't stick your head in the sand. Don't Certainly don't uh, assume that whoever you're interacting with has your best interests in mind. Um, they most likely have different alignment to different incentives than what you have. And just being aware is is where you want to be. Rules, regulations, and legislation will catch up eventually. We hope so. I want to thank you so much for being with us, uh, Aaron Addison of Washington University. Fascinating stuff. It's interesting times, as the Chinese say. We live in interesting times. That's right. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU.